This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host, Nabil Mahmood, live from Sonoma County, California. This is your co-host, Philip Coburn, live from New York City. And hi, I'm John Lee, and right now I'm live from the New York City, northern New Jersey metro area. Just the famed New York metro area. Just say Jersey, John. It's, it's, fine. Jersey, it's fine. Yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. For starters, of course, we are very appreciative of actually you joining us at Nomad Futures, one of our ambassadors. But before we start digging into what you are doing these days, let's start to get to know you a little bit. So could you tell us, besides uh, being one of the ambassadors at Nomad Futurist, what do you do? So interesting, right? The Nomad Futurist ambassador thing is, is very recent. So don't have a lot of accomplishments there to talk about anyway yet, but it's coming, right? So I, I was working till most recently in the infrastructure world. Last 15 years, I spent in the data center space, right? Specifically physical infrastructure in the data center space. But my career is about 35 years it's been in IT and tech. I, I, I don't even think they called it IT back then, right? It was just who can do the job? Oh, oh you, I think you can do it. You, you go try it. And if it works out, we'll let you know if you're doing well. If not, see you later, right? So I started out mostly working financial services. I worked both ends of the spectrum. I was a, a vendor for financial services software for a long time. Then something bit me and I decided, hey, let's go to Wall Street and work for some big banks, right? Because I thought big banks had a lot of money and they do, and they can do a lot of neat stuff, especially financial services. They buy just the latest stuff, right? And most of the time when you want to see cool stuff, banks run cool stuff. So I decided, hey, if I wanted to see some more cool stuff, that's what I would do. It's been an interesting journey, right? So as a young kid, didn't have much direction, hated school, blah, 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 the whole bit. It was boring, wasn't great. I got the opportunity, and I say it's opportunity to- Where did you grow up? I was born originally in Hong Kong. Then I went out. We left Hong Kong. We went to Canada for a little while because we used to have a very open immigration policy with Canada, right? Like op open the gates and just right. to drive in in Volkswagen, and, and you're now become a green card in New York City. And I actually drove in from, from Canada in a Volkswagen. So, so, <laughs> that's, that's a true story. It was actually back in the day in the seventies, it was a Volkswagen Beetle. I'll never forget it. Right. It was pretty funny. I ended up going to school. The bulk of the years of school was in Brooklyn and Queens, and I finished up high school in New Jersey. So I, I kind of got around a little bit. I got a little bit of different ways of learning different education systems, which was very interesting to me. Amazing. But you didn't like school. Hated it. It not, you hated it. It was boring to me. Right. Because I, I felt school was necessary to check some check boxes and, and I'll talk to you about check boxes in a second. Right. But at the same time, what's in it for me at that point, uh, there wasn't much, it was a book, you read the textbook and then you just kind of tell us what you read. And, and we call that a test. And if you do well, you're, you're smart. And if you don't do well, you're not so smart. Right. So ha ha ha. And that's what happened. So I started to, to look at other things, but like I said, I had the opportunity when I was a teenager to go on my own. And go on my own means you go find a place to live, go find a job, go find a location. And I was still a teenager at the time. And you know what? You start to learn how to work and you learn the value of a dollar, right? And I think that's one of the most important things I ever learned in my life, right? And you learn some really great values. And one of the values I learned was if you're on time, you're late, 
right? I've never been late. I, I do my best when you can help it, that type of stuff. And then from there, I had a limited window. I was persuaded. I, I don't want to get into why I was persuaded, but I was persuaded to pick a future. And the future was military service, college, or some type of trade. The military service piece wasn't really appealing to me at the time because you're still kind of like a little bit of a rebel and things bored you and, and you didn't want to get into that. College definitely wasn't in my future because finances wasn't going to afford college, right? We all know what college costs today. And it was just as expensive back then, just I think in scale, right? It was a little less money, but money went a long way. So I decided one day I was reading the newspaper and I saw a little ad in the back and it said, you can learn the fascinating field of computers or something like that. I can already hear the people listening to this podcast being like, how do you read a newspaper? Like there was an actual piece of paper. Yeah, well, that was, was a piece of paper. That was in the day, day right? It's, <laughs> I teach a course today. I teach a lot of classes. We'll talk about that too. But I always ask myself, how many people grew up without the internet? And it's like cricket. Let me just get that straight. You hated school and now you teach classes, right? Uh, that, and it's okay. a long, That's long journey. Right. Why? We're going to get there. What did your parents do for a living? My parents worked, right? So I'm first generation, right? From Hong Kong here. So right. typical Asian immigrant story. I came, worked hard, worked two jobs each, trying to make ends meet, right? And my mother was a teacher at one time back in Hong Kong and that didn't work out when you come to the States because that's all not transferable and life right. gets in the way and she's trying to raise two kids to do better, that kind of stuff. So she started to work for a bank called Manufacturers Hanover Trust. And it's very interesting because later on my career, I ended up working for the company that swallowed that bank right? in, in all of the bank and, and in fairness, in all of the bank mergers and acquisitions, right? My dad is funny. My dad used to work for a bank when he was there. And then when he came here, he didn't work for the bank. And the bank he worked for at the time was called the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, which today we know as HSBC, right? I think the alliteration still works, right? It's still the same letters. It absolutely right? is. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. They used to have the lions down at like five world trade outside and stuff. But my dad didn't work at the bank when we came to the States. He, he got a job. Believe it or not, stereotypically, my dad worked in a restaurant and it wasn't Italian. So you know where that goes. Um, later on, my dad became a translator for uh, Columbia, Sloan Kettering, right up on the east side on 80th Street there. So he was a translator for the hospital doing a lot of medicine in-home visits, especially to senior citizens that weren't mobile. Two things, they had the language barrier and they weren't mobile. So a lot of in-care stuff where you visited homes and translated the aches and pains from seniors to the medical staff. So that's what he ended up doing at the very end. So neither one did anything with technology. That's quite interesting, but you got into banking. Let's step back just a little bit. How old were you when you moved to Canada? Uh, I was about 11. And then how old were you when you drove across to the United States in the bug, was it? Or just the simple old beetle? Beetle. Uh, beetle. I was probably about 12. <laughs> All right. Did not spend much time in Canada. Uh, it was just for the immigration policy, right? It was right. just open. So Hong Kong let you go to Canada, Canada let you go to US, and it's a migratory path. A lot of people took that same path back in the 70s. How many siblings do you have? Oh, I have a sister. She's about three years older than me. So not much of an age gap either. Okay. So like, being an Asian family and having those roots and mom being an educator and dad being in the financial market segment, based on what we know of that culture, there is this strong advocacy of education. And yeah. you being a rebellion, how was that treated and taken by the family? Well, like I said, I got the opportunity to go on my own when I was a teenager, right? And that's how it was taken. Today, that would be like horrible. Oh my goodness. How could be? You get the uh, child protective services would come to your house, right? That would probably happen. But you know what? I mean, 
at the end of the day, everybody has to be productive. They got to do something, right? So if you don't want to go to school, go figure out what you want to do. Just did your sister take a similar path or did she not? My sister became like a scientist, went to college, the whole, <laughs> oh, went, right. whole oh yeah, the whole traditional route, right? The smart one, right? And me, I, I was the sheep, right? The outcast. It's also second child syndrome. Who cares what the second one does? We, first one's already successful. First one's already successful. We only did one right. So high-fiving themselves in the background. So, yeah, we got one out of two. If it was baseball, we'd be awesome, right? They go into their friends like, didn't you have two kids? No, no, no. Look at our daughter. Look at our daughter. It's amazing. Look at the graduation picture. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, you did pretty good in the grand scheme of things. Yes. So tell us, after going and starting your career as a teenager, you were mentioning about the three opportunities that you had, either to go into military college or trade. What was that journey and what made you pick the technology sector? <laughs> well, college was easy. College just wasn't going because the finances weren't there, right? Just couldn't afford to go to college. So that was easy. That was a big X right there. Military service was funny because I went for a, I, I want to say it was like a career day kind of thing. It was like, a hey, this is what the military looks like to you and you could be part of this. And you know what? Military life isn't bad life. It's just something that I, I wasn't ready for. And to be honest with you, at that time in the 80s, um, what made me decide not to choose the military was the food. It was awful. I tasted it. I said, excuse me, Sergeant, is this what we eat? I said, yeah, three square meals of this a day. So, okay, great. Thanks. I have no problem putting my life on the line. I have no problem nope. fighting for my country. I have no problem nope. losing an arm, losing a limb, or dying in battle, but just give me some good food. I was too big, believe it or not. And Phil, you met me. You see my stature. I'm not that big of a guy, but I was too big to do the job that I wanted to do. And I wanted to drive tanks in Germany. That was my big thing. Because back in those days, we had a big base in Germany. And that's where I wanted to go, right? Germany sounds great anywhere but here. And it's about getting away from the things that maybe made you not happy or made you sad or whatever. But this is a whole brand new life on the road, Jeremy. Guy looked at me, he says, nah, nah, you don't even fit in a tank. So, you sorry. can't squeeze into the tank? <laughs> so wow. with that left, it was trade school and... You too can earn a future in computers, right? Little tiny ad in the newspaper. I'll never forget that. So I went to a trade school. It was called Computer Processing Institute at the time. And they used to have these commercials at late night TV type thing. And you know what? I decided to go. And when you went there, you take an aptitude test. They said, do you want to do software and hardware? I said, what's software? What's hardware? I, I have no idea. <laughs> can you explain it to me from the beginning? Because I'm really not that good at this. And they said, don't worry. Don't worry, you'll like it. And I ended up earning a certificate in electronics, actual electronics, not like circuitry, right? Like soldering and transistors mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. To me, that was interesting because I always like to work with my hands, right? Tools. I didn't want to do the IBM System 36 key punch, all that stuff. That wasn't very interesting to me and it looked kind of boring at the time. So you go to trade school and you do that. And you come out, it's about a year program, 10, 11 months. You come out, you have this thing that is absolutely worthless. You have an education of something, but you know what? It did something really awesome for me. It let me understand what it was like to make sure that you make a commitment and you follow through with that commitment, right? Regardless. So here I was, this is the first time in my life. I'm still a young kid. And I now have to pay for the school. So if I'm paying for the school, I'm going every single day on time and I'm doing the homework and I'm doing all my stuff, right? To try to do the best that I can. And totally different uh, mentality than you had in high school where you were bored and you hated it. This was like all in. You know why wow. that is? 
30 days comes really quickly. So when rent and everything else is due in 30 days, man, that comes really quick, right? So you learn some responsibility real fast. You were working while you were in that school. I worked in a plumbing supply. I cut pipe, like physically cutting and threading black iron pipe and galvanized pipe, gas pipe, water pipe, it's any type of pipe. I would cut pipe like six hours, eight hours a day. And Nobody go, cuts pipe like John Lane. Nobody can cut pipe. Better than me, I think, at this point. I've done it so much. That sounds like a challenge. If anybody out there thinks they can take on John Lane pipe cutting. I'm the guy. So you end up going to school and then you come out and you think like everything now at this point, right? You're just awesome and think, and you know what? You you try to figure out how you're going to get a job. And, And this next thing, I'll tell you how I got my first job was just totally how I think a lot of people would end up getting jobs. You're just at the right place at the right time. I was buying a pair of pants in Macy's. I ran into a guy that I knew back in the days when we started school. He says to me, hey, there's this company that I work for. You could probably do the work. There's a finder's fee if you stay 90 days. And if you get the job and you stay 90 days, I'll split the fee with you. Okay, sounds great. Very New Yorkish, that is. <laughs> I mean, that sounds, that sounds very familiar. And, and uh, Not the buying pants in Macy's part, but the, uh, the grift on the uh, splitting the yeah. finder's fee sounds very New York. And, and it's very New York. And I went to interview with this small little company and they had a, a mainframe. And what they used to do is they did back office accounting for financial firms, right? Mostly in securities and stuff. So what happens is really a trader on the floor puts in a trade back in the day, right? Buy, sell tickets. After the desk closes, there's people that have to account for that, right? Like how much we bought and what the price of the stock is and how like much. You, like hu- human people, not machines. At that time, it was human people entering things from the buy and sell tickets, right? That used to go on the floor. And I worked for a company that processed that data overnight with the day's closing prices from the market, right? market feed. And what they would do is they would spit that data back out to the customer the next morning in reporting, right? Reports were big. You print out reports and deliver them, help them print statements for their customers, all of that stuff. And I worked as a technical specialist for that company, which basically meant that you troubleshoot anything that doesn't work, you go and figure out how to fix it, right? And it was a really good time because that was when the market, back in the day, they used to have the real-time pricing on a really old, archaic terminal called a Quotron terminal. What year was that? Oh, this was like 80, late 80s, 86, 87, 88, right before that first little Black Friday, we had that little dip on the market, remember that? That famous picture of the market closing so many hundred points down. Yeah, that was 1987. Yeah, so that was a Quotron terminal, right? So all those services, I was one of the vendors on the market doing that work. So, and it was a good job. And then what happened with that in the career is they said, hey, you know what? You kind of know a little bit more than that, or you show a little bit more like you want to learn more. So we're going to teach you more. We're going to continue to teach you stuff until you don't want to learn anymore. And I said, wow, that's great, right? The funny thing is the company thought that I was just in it for the learning. Honestly, I was in it to pay the bills. 30 days, real fast, right? Right. So I used to work every single hour I possibly could to earn that extra dollar worth of salary, right? So to the company, it was like, oh, this guy works hard. To me, it's like, no, man, I got bills to pay, right? I can't just rely. And it still sounds easier than pipe cutting. No, I still cut pipe. (laughs) He still cut pipe too. (laughs) Oh my God. In my spare time, I'm still cutting pipe. When your first job is making you $13,000 a year in the 80s, you're cutting pipe on the weekends, right? You're doing something. So, no one so can that's pry this it, pipe cutter out of my cold, dead hands. 
Yeah, that's it. That's how the journey started. And I was really fortunate to work for a few folks in my career that really took a liking to me, like the way I handle things or like the way I resolved issues. And they decided to give you more and more responsibility. Right. And honestly, that's what happened throughout the years. I was ended up with that company surviving through a few acquisitions and, and reorgs and stuff. I ended up 18 years with them. Um, that's a phenomenal story. It, it's a long time, 18 years. And, and some of it is because the people that I knew there or the people that led me were great leaders. And I followed them throughout my career because I honestly believed that they had my best interest at heart, right? And they did, right? So why would you leave? Like today, people don't leave jobs, right? They leave their managers, right? They leave their leaders. So that is really true. I really Are you still cutting pipe on the 18th year? I'm really oh, stuck on this pipe thing. Oh, right, you're done. You're done. You're, you're really stuck on that, Phil. That, that's that <laughs> over many times ago, but I can probably. <laughs> so, so. Well, if need be, he can, Phil. That's right. Uh, we're gonna, we might, I'm going to have to test that. Next time I see him, I'm going to bring a couple, couple pipes just to see if he's still there. You go. I can at least tell you what kind of pipe, what it's made of, right. the size. Oh, my God. This is, like, this is going all off the rails. All the statistics and facts. So, 18 uh, years there. Yeah, 18 years there. One year, I took a year off. I took a sabbatical from there. And my boss says, what, what are you trying to do? I said, honestly, I want to leave and I want to go to a firm that actually makes something. So I had never worked for a company that actually made a product, right? Because I only did digital work. We took a company's data, we processed it, we gave it back to them. Like, what did we make? We didn't make a little widget. We didn't do anything. So I went to go learn what it was like to work in a manufacturing facility in, in technology, IT. Totally different world when you make a product than when you don't, right? When your product's digital, which obviously we're all in the business of that now, uh, but if you actually have to look in an assembly line and how IT's run there is totally different. And it was probably one of the most defining years of my life, of my career, understanding the mentality of what it's like to actually produce a widget at the end of the manufacturing cycle. Was that after you were done there or was that in between? In between. Like, in between. So you yeah, took a year off of your existing job, job yeah. to get another job, not to go on vacation, not nope. to go find yourself, not nope. to travel around Europe. But to go work in a different place, to work and in a different I, I just can't even imagine what I, I, that that was something that they were like cool with. That doesn't sound like a sabbatical. That sounds like two weeks notice. No, no, it wasn't. I went to them. I said, this is what I want to do. I said, look, do you want me to come back or do you want me to move on? Either way, this is going to happen. They said, John, we want you to come back. Is this really what you want to do? I said, yeah, I want to understand the value of what it's like to work in a place where you actually have deadlines to make something that someone's depending upon. And I went to a place that made, it's funny, they made, when you go get supplements at the vitamin store and all that stuff, all the little capsules and stuff, right? Most of them don't make that, they just package it. I went to a company that made the raw materials to make all of these supplements today that you hear about, just to see what that was like. Heavy in science, heavy in technology, manufacturing technology. So it's really, really interesting to learn that. How did that even come up though? How do you find that job? Like you say, I want to go to a company that makes something, but then you have to find the company and go there. Did the opportunity come to you? Did you go seek it out? You know what? I, I think it came to me, if I remember correctly, I, again, somebody that knows something that says, hey, John, this would be great if you want to look at this. And I went and I met with the controller of the company and I met with the CEO of the company. And you told like, them you only wanted to stay for a year? I told them that I would stay for as long as it took to organize their operations. And what we decided to do was we decided that, hey, John's going to come in and he's going to help us write a blueprint of how we should be running. So 
what we know in operations today is a run book, right? For those of us that, that know that hardcore operation stuff, I helped them write a run book. That's what I did. Is that the first run book you've ever written? Um, probably from beginning to end, but I had previously committed a lot of chapters in other people's run book, right? So I knew I could do this. And it's funny, I, I recently did it about a year ago for a small company in Washington, D.C. As part of an outreach program, I volunteered for a small business mentorship program, and I helped them write a run book of how they're going to launch their product. So, so it was a good skill to have then, and it's still a good skill to have now. And that's what I did. That's amazing. It, it's like a brand new idea today. And I don't think there's any employer that would be willing to say, okay, John, take a year off, go learn a different vertical, a different sector, a different trade, a different skill set. Was that fairly common back then? And, or, or was this that kind of like an East Coast thing? Or was that John Lee being John Lee? And I don't know. I never thought about it. And, and I still don't do that to this day, right? I, I've done a lot of ideation of ideas. And I never knew if, is this novel or is it not? That someone... I'm, I'm an East Coast guy. I'm not that much younger than John Lee is. Uh, I think that's just John Lee being John Lee. I don't it think I've be... ever heard of that. I've never heard of that like situation happen where somebody's like, I just want to go test, try this thing out. But you must be so, like, that's the thing. Like, when you are an asset to an organization, when they see you as an asset, not just for the work that you're doing today, but the work that you could be doing tomorrow, and they give you that leash to kind of go and explore and grow yourself. It seems like a really weird concept, like logistically, but it makes yep. all the sense in the world, right? You're just going to be more loyal to them. You're going to grow as an individual, as professionally, personally, et cetera. And why wouldn't they give you the opportunity so that you're not bored with your existing job? And if you do end up coming back, you'll be all the more kind of revitalized and beneficial to the organization. So it makes total sense. Smarts, I brought some smarts back too, right? About what, what it's like to work with workers. And that was probably one of the first studies that I, I looked at or first time I understood what it's like to treat people well in a job. What does that mean, right? So that's so important today. I mean, you see it every headline, right? It's people first, people first. And when you start to learn those lessons firsthand, they, they don't leave you, right? And you kind of, that transcends to what you are today, right? Your experiences, I, I really believe, make up what you are today, right? Oh, good, good or bad, absolutely. right? It will, you know? Yeah. Well, it's certainly an idea I think that we should look further into and explore. I mean, as far as the, our initiative is concerned, we are very open to the idea of bringing other trades and other experiences. Yeah. We can better serve those sectors. Right, at right. Or have a, a good understanding of what's needed to support them, help them scale up. John, it's just an amazing story. I'm kind of baffled. Like, where do we take this on? You so, mentioned you hated education. Yeah. Then you went out and got your until, degree. Until he, had to, until he had to pay for it. And then he loved it. I loved it. <laughs> 30 <laughs> days, 30 days, right? Yeah. So then I see that you got a, a master's degree. Tell us about that. How did you end up pursuing that, knowing that that was not on the radar initially? And why did you pick up what you picked up? It's funny that the higher ed stuff, the, the college, the undergrad and the graduate degree didn't come till much later in my life. I think I was in my 30s before I even thought about getting an undergraduate degree. One of the main reasons why is because I, I stayed with this financial services company, right? I was working, I, I was getting promoted. I was in my late twenties making a great salary, right? And one day I'm sitting back in my an office the whole bit, right? I had an office, credenza, I had a little putting green, the whole thing that stereotypical. 
thing back in the 90s. That, that's what you get, right? Mad Men. Mad Men. John Lee edition. I just didn't have the bar, right? But the suit and everything, we used to have to get dressed the whole bit. And I was thinking, like, what are you going to do now? And this is a, a question that I've asked myself throughout my life. What are you going to do now? And I realized something like the light bulb came on or maybe the light fixture fell from the ceiling, hit me in the head that I topped out. This is it. Doesn't get any better. This is it. Are you okay with this? And I went to a period and says, no, not really. I mean, it's nice. It's an office, but that's really about it. This is what life is, is not enough. I want a whole golf course. I don't want just a putting green. I mean, exactly. come on. You, you, and it's not even possessing stuff. It's like, so I still have 40 years or 30 years, 30 something years left in the working world. I'm going to do this for the next 30 years. No, no, it didn't sound right. So the only way I could figure out how to do that was, okay, so now I have the experience, right? I've had 10, 15 years experience in technology already. They're starting to call it technology now. They're starting to call it information technology or that kind of stuff, right? Okay. Information systems. There's real names for this stuff now. Well, you know what? You start to wonder like the folks that you're hiring for you all have degrees. They're all coming in. I got my bachelor's degree from here or here. And you're the only guy that doesn't have that. Many years later, I'm sitting in conference rooms and people are talking and I'm just looking at them. And I discovered that this was what they call imposter syndrome, right? You're sitting around a table. Everybody's got a degree. They're all talking stuff. And you're not saying anything now because you feel like you can't compete. You don't have the skills. You don't have the pedigree. You don't have the check mark for degree. So I look at my company. They said, hey, John, you want to go to college? We'll pay 95% of your tuition for you, including books and fees. Oh, okay. Let's go. So I took five years. I went, got my undergrad. At that time, it was distance education. I definitely did the work. I don't know how accredited it was, but I got a degree. And that's okay, right? Because now I had a degree. It was a really good defining moment in life. By the way, you would have totally ignored it if you hadn't had to pay that 5%. It's a good thing they left that 5% because we all know how John Lee reacts to education when he doesn't have to pay for it. If it's free, it's not going to show up. (laughs) Right. But what was important there, I think, was from the moment I went to trade school, I did value education at that point because you pay for it and you do see it. And then as you were getting passed up or you were in that conference room and you feel that imposter syndrome, you have to fix it. I didn't know it was called that then, by the way. And you have to fix it. And the loftiest thing when you were a kid, when you were working, doing all the other work stuff, hard labor that you were doing, you always dreamed about, like you, you look at your friends, they all went to college, they all got great jobs and you're still in a, a manufacturing town, cutting pipe and doing whatever. You start to think about dreams and goals, right? That's what everybody thinks about. And one of mine was to graduate college. Simple as that. So I tapped out at my pay scale. I have a company that's offering to give me 95% of tuition. How do you not go? How do you not seize that opportunity, right? So I seize the opportunity. I get a college degree. Awesome. Didn't make me different. Didn't make me anything. It just allowed me to validate the work that I've done in the past 15 years. And that's really what it did, right? It also probably got your parents to start remembering they had a second child. Well, by that time, I was already fairly successful. (laughs) I was traveling all over the country by that time. And I remember one time I was in Las Vegas. I, I don't remember what I was doing in Vegas. I think I was at a conference like Comdex or something like that. Those old shows. And my father was living in Arizona at the time. And I invited him. I flew him up to Vegas and I was staying at Caesars. They gave me a huge room. Like it was pretty awesome. And my dad said to me, what exactly do you do? And why do you have to do it here? Like, don't they have anyone here to do this work? And I'm like, I guess not because they're asking me to come. So my parents never really understood what I did for a living because they couldn't conceptualize 
how someone could get paid a decent salary to essentially produce nothing, right? I mean, we do deals, we advance business, we help things go along and I troubleshoot things and I fix things. But at the end of the day, I didn't make anything, right? So it was pretty funny. I mean, he did come for, he was a, he well, did work at HSBC. I mean, it's not like he's <laughs> they're not uh, exactly a beacon of manufacturing. Not in the technology sense, right? In banking sense, it's a little different, but just couldn't understand that. Sometimes doing nothing is doing everything. That's true. It's good to be the wizard behind the curtains and making sometimes, the world go around. Sometimes it is. Um, and then what ended up happening was I decided to leave the financial um, software company and seek out some different employment. I was becoming what I considered the big fish in a small pond syndrome to the point where my bosses were making up jobs for me. And the reason why is they wanted to keep me around for, for all the right reasons, right? They valued my opinion. They valued my institutional knowledge, right? That's a big thing. But they, they were essentially like making jobs up for me. It was, it was kind of funny and you kind of get bored. So I went on to something bigger and better, worked in the insurance company for a little while, insurance industry, ran a really big portal. I was doing production services for a, maybe like $1.2 billion business to business portal. Oh, operations for that, right? And that's where your run book skills came back. And that's what I did there. I wrote them a run book and I helped them scale their application a little bit. They grew an application out of a database that should have never been. And what ended up happening is now as they added clients, they didn't really re-architect the system, right? And so the system would hang every day at 2 a.m. So the answer that they were doing was they would reboot it. And I was like, what do you mean reboot it? And it was like the classic three-tier architecture, right? You had back then MQ, uh, IBM's MQ was big, right? Messaging. They would reboot the message gateway, which meant essentially they lost all the messages. So all the transactions were gone, right? So help them fix that kind of stuff and understand the database a little bit and get some routines in for maintenance and then take a look at some stuff like, hey, you know what? You, you folks are drawing reporting and processing and transactions off the same database table. Like no wonder why it's crashing, right? Maybe you want to do some virtual views and you know all this technical jargon, right? That lasted about 10 months for two reasons. One is there was not much work after that. We wrote a run book, got everything running. And you know what? I'm now reading the newspaper every day at 9 a.m. Bored out of my mind. So, okay, time to go. And I ended up going to one of the customers that I used to service. And the customers I used to service out on the financial world, I had heard that they had pretty good educational benefits again. So here we go with the education again, right? It's all tied in somewhere. So once I got my undergrad degree, the next thing is, I think it's important for someone to always have a lofty goal somewhere, whatever that lofty goal is. My lofty goal is, man, wouldn't it be awesome if I was the one giving the lecture? That's a pretty lofty goal, right? For a guy that worked 20 hours a day, get yourself a degree and you're looking at your professor going, wonder what it'd be like to be that person. Lofty goal. So the only way- Was it that or were you like John Lee? Was John Lee saying, I'm smarter than him? No, no. I, I thought the professors were really smart or at least they portrayed themselves to be smart. And that's where I'm at now. But I said, wow, there's a goal for us. One day I am going to teach college. That's what I said. I said it. And I remember the day I said it. Well, I went to work for a company because I had heard that if you do well there, they had a master's program. And the master's program, they would sponsor you if you did well. So I applied for a job there. I got the job. I took a little bit of a pay cut, very, very small, maybe $10,000 pay cut to go work for this company. 
and I rationalized this, I got a shot at it, it would take three years before they would recommend me. And that's what happened. So I worked hard for three years. They ended up recommending me. There was about 330 people or so applied for the degree. And I was one of 30 chosen. So for whatever reason, got the right contacts, got the right recommendation letters. And that's how I ended up getting my master's. So that's what really happened. A lot of funny stories with that. So they paid for the degree and they wouldn't pay for the books. Really? There's that 5% right, right there. Right. So, so right. guess what happened? Ready? I wouldn't pay for the books either. It was a principal thing. It's That's a game funny. of chicken. It's a game of chicken with a book. It was a game of chicken and neither one of us won, but I ended up doing my entire master's degree without buying a book. I, I absolutely refuse to buy books and we, we'll call up some of my old um, friends that work in the industry that were part of my group and they'll tell you, John never bought a book. That guy just wouldn't spring for it. Right. So, you learn to read fast. You read other people's books. Hey, can I borrow that for a minute? <laughs> just, right. Oh, my God. Speed reading to avoid book purchase. But you really learn to listen to the lecture, right? Because right. You, know, you don't have the book. You better listen to what this guy or, or this, this lady saying, right? For real. And I think that brings the stakes up a little bit. And that's what happened. I ended up getting a master's degree. And after you have the degree, still didn't make me a different person. Just gave me another checkbox to check, right? I'm still the same person. So nothing changed. But I was one step closer to that lofty goal, right? And then in 2016, I was out in your neck of the woods right now, Nabil. I was out, well, I was in San Jose. I think it was around 2015 or 2016 I was there. I was attending one of the first meetings for a little group, small folks um, known as the Infrastructure Masons. You may have heard of them. Dean, Dean Nelson, all those guys, they were out in Google and I got an invitation to go. I said, yeah, you know what? Why not? I flew out there and I met all those guys and I said, wow, look at these guys. Like these guys are, and, and men and women, they're, they're, they're really the titans of this industry, right? And, and you look at what some of these folks have done, some amazing stuff and all of that. And you look and say, wow, what are these folks doing that I'm not doing? Because we're the same age, right? We, we're in the same field. Uh, how did this happen? And you start to ask yourself the question again. And you realize that one of the things that these folks did that I didn't do was they spent a really good, a decent amount of time of their career and their lives giving back, giving back. Because at this point, John Lee wasn't about giving back. John Lee was about making a living and surviving, right? So around that time, we had talked. And to this day, I, I remember that we had a cocktail party, a reception afterwards. It was in Google up, up in San Jose somewhere. And we started talking to people and every single person I talked to there did something to give back. It was the most amazing thing I ever saw. I went back and said, well, what the heck are you going to do? Like, this is what you're missing, right? So that's when I started said, you know what? It's time to try to do the lofty goal. Maybe the thing is to teach school and through teaching school, you'll understand what folks coming into school today need, right? What, what do students need today? And, and I say it in this way, and, and it doesn't mean a bad thing. It's just the way that I think about it now is students coming in today, getting ready for the job market are just not motivated by the same things I was or any of us, right? The three of us are probably close to the same generation somewhere, right? Plus or minus a few mm -hmm. years. I think each one of us coming up were motivated by success was defined by how much money I could make in a year, maybe some material things that I could buy that kind of stuff. And, and if you look today at the profile of new workers coming in, that's not all of it. That's just a small bit of it, right? So you have to really learn what's motivating people today. And that's how you're going to build great teams. So 
I became a teacher so I can understand what students think. Like, what are you thinking? Because I'm so far removed from you that I can't possibly figure it out. So you became a professor to learn from the students. I did. I learned every single day. I had a lecture last night. I had a lecture the other night. And, I, and I'll tell you what I lecture in. So right now I'm teaching introduction to software engineering using Python. With, and Python is just because it's easy to, to learn. But really, it's all about getting them a good base in understanding logic and thinking. Believe it or not, I think most of the problems that my students run into, it's not because they don't know how to code. That's easy. I teach you how to code in five minutes. It's the ability to understand the dreaded word problem, right? Remember word problems? We hated them, right? Johnny's got six apples. Mary's got four apples. If Johnny ate two, how many does Mary have? And you get all confused. And, and that's, that's a big part of it, right? It's translating what the user's needs are, right? The specs. Right, you, you translate what the business needs are and you write up the specs for your design, right? And then based on that, you design and you co coding is just this much, right? It, it's very little. It's understanding what someone wants, the requirements. It's really just the same problem as solving a word problem when you were younger. And so you get to see students and, and this is what I do. I try to teach students, don't worry about the code. How would you do it in your native language? If it's English, then just say the words you want it to in English. Let the computer worry about it later because we're at such high level languages now that Python is almost English at this point, right? The next one will be AI, right? So if I understand the word problem and I dictate it to ChatGBT, guess what? The code's going to come out. But if I don't know what I want and I don't say it correctly to ChatGBT, it can only interpret what I'm asking for, right? So in a way, I teach school to understand what's motivating people today and, of course, stay relevant in, in academia. I think that's important. How I came about teaching software development, because I'm not a software developer, was the... Five minutes ago, you didn't even know what software was. Well, that was back in the 80s. <laughs> software? What, what, what is that? What, what exactly is that? I remember asking the, the counselor, what do you mean? And so the software, how I became teaching software development is because... Companies are funny, right? When you work for big companies, they want you to do better. They want you to better yourself. They want you to constant learning, right? They want you to constant better yourself. So I used to take a Python book and every year I would start this course with Python and I would go through all the lessons. Great. I passed them all. I take the book, put it back on the shelf, done. Check, checked off my training. And then a couple of years back, I said, you know what? Why don't we actually do something with it, right? Instead of just taking the book off the shelf, learning the lessons. Okay, I completed training for a year. Oh, did I have to do mandatory 10-hour training? I did it. Here's the thing. Here's the proof, right? And then I would never use it again. So I decided to do something with it. One of the best ways to master something is the ability to teach it. So if I could teach it to you, that must mean that I must know something about it, right? Something, right? So go teach it. Figure it out. So that's what I do. I teach Python. I'm teaching Java in another semester, you know? And that's how you become a teacher. That's how you become a professor. But you learn a lot of things. You learn how to teach. I think teaching transcends to the other side of my professional career, which is managing teams, right? I was a manager of managers in the infrastructure space. And you learn how to treat people a little bit different when you're dealing with directly with students, right? Every day. So both of these things are complementary in a way. It's just the way my mind works. I think it jumbles it up and somehow it comes out at the end of the I day. I think you're a perfect definition of chat GPT 4.0. I mean, <laughs> we, we, we've only been able to cover just a very small part of your career. I think this probably might require a second episode. Yeah, we um, might have to have a part two. 
And you know what? Honestly, seriously, everything's been governed because I think I hear Phil, you joke about it. I'm never the smartest guy in the room, right? I think I've heard you say that. And I don't think that's true, by the way. I actually am not the smartest guy in the room. So while Phil talks about it, I'm actually not the smartest guy in the room. But what I do know is I know a couple of things. I know that when I don't know, I go find out, right? I will ask a question. And I think that's a key thing. So I've only learned about four lessons in my whole life to get to where I am. And one of them is don't be embarrassed to ask a question. And the second two is pretty straightforward. And I tell a lot of folks that I've mentored over the years, I said, do you want to be successful? And they say, yes. I said, follow these two things in everything you do. I think it'll work out a lot better for you. Ready? You guys ready? First thing I ever learned the hard way, many different stories that I had, is this. If something doesn't feel right, don't do it. It's just as simple as that. So I ran data center operations for quite a few organizations, right? And I would always tell the engineers, hey, listen, something doesn't feel right, don't do it. I don't mean ignore it. Stop for a second. Slow down. Ask a question. Get clarification before you do it. So because intrinsically, you know it's not the right thing. Everybody knows right or wrong, right? It's just intrinsically in you. Hey, this doesn't feel right. Don't do it. And that's in your personal life, in your professional life, whatever it is you want to do. If really it nags at you, something's not right. So that's the first thing I learned. And I think that's helped me more than anything else in this world. The second thing I think I learned was to say this, how would you feel if it was you? And I say this in a way, so this was long before people said, yeah, we're going to manage and be empathetic and stuff. Of course, you're going to be empathetic. that's, That's a human nature, right? Look, before you write that email, before you have a conversation, before you start screaming at someone or they're screaming at you, stop for a second, put yourself in the other person's place. How would you feel if that was being done to you? Would you like it? If the answer is no, chances are you probably shouldn't do it, right? And you hear many, many variations of this. Like, would you say that stuff in front of your mom? Like people have said that over the years, right? And I think it's all the same thing. How would you feel if it was you? If you were going to write an email, you were going to blast somebody on your team for it, right? And everyone's done it. And I'm not perfect. I've done it myself, right? You say to yourself, before you hit that send, read that email. How would you feel if you received that email? Would you like it? If the answer is no, don't send it. Figure out a different way. So between those two things, I think I've gotten quite far with them, right? What's amazing about those lessons is it's not really about specific technical knowledge, right? It's it's almost like a mantra in how to live your life. Like you've just somehow kind of used these personal mantras to get from that kid that hated school to this guy that's running teams of teams in this super technical world that admittedly is never the smartest guy in the room, but never has the ego to not show the vulnerability that it takes to ask the, the question and allow someone to convince you or teach you what the right thing is. Because like you said, the experts that are in the room, in order for them to be experts, they should be able to teach you, right? So if so. they can't convince you, then it exactly. totally makes sense. It's just that people, I don't think, necessarily take that kind of 30,000 foot view. Like everyone gets trapped and I need to know how to do this exact thing really well, as opposed to, I need to understand how to think. And then all other problems are solved through that one element. Yeah, I I know we're running out of time, but just real quick, I'll I'll tell you what's happening now. And then maybe we can come back and guys like this, we can talk about a little bit more. So recently I had a really awesome opportunity to take the summer off, right? So I take the summer off and really summer not the John. sabbatical, no, not this the is sabbatical that you did before. Nope. No, this is not. literally a summer off, right? No work, no work in the sense of traditional nine to five reporting structure, corporate thing. One of the things I did was I hooked up with you guys, right? To look to give back a little bit, which is important. 
Second thing is you sit back and you wonder, where's your career going to go now? And that's really where I'm focused on. You're trying to figure out what do you want to do for a living? What do you want to do now? I'm still asking myself that question 30 years later. And I think this time around, it's time to get back into and have a little fun again, right? Fun in the business world, fun with the position. I think taking this time off was really awesome. I mean, I would recommend it if you could do it, if you're fortunate enough to do it. Luckily, like I, I made some good decisions and really just reflect about it, right? What do you want to do for a living? What do you want to still do? What do you still want to accomplish? So I have a list somewhere of all the things that I think I want to do. We'll love to share that list with the audience, right? Oh, we'll share it. We'll share it. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be really, really cool to actually have some sort of a relevance point. Like, you know, whatever goal that you had set yourself up to before you were able to achieve it. Right. Just out of curiosity, what's next for John Lee? Yeah. John, but. All these experiences and your engagement and being a titan of the industry, what would you tell the young John Lee if you were to do it all over again? If I was to do it all over again, that's a good question, right? You think about all the things. So first of all, I don't regret anything. So there's nothing I would redo a different way. What I wish I did was I learned the lessons earlier in life, right? So of course, right? That's everybody. But you know what? To a person starting out today, I would say this, give yourself that goal right? Give yourself a few goals. Give yourself some short-term goals that you know you can do. A little bit of a stretch. Maybe you got to work a little bit more to get ahead or don't quit. That type of goal where you achieve something relatively quickly, right? Six months or so. Maybe you get that promotion or something, right? And then give yourself a really lofty goal. Keep that goal in the back of your mind while you're going through your career because I think what happens is subconsciously, you will find that you make decisions that align to that goal one way or the other. You understand? Like for me, it was, oh man, if I could be that professor, each time I gave myself a loftier goal, I didn't go out and look for it. It kind of came to me, right? And it didn't actually come by accident. I really believe what's happening is you have that goal. You really believe in it. Well, as you're presented with choices, you're making choices that naturally will flow you over towards that goal. So I think setting goals, realistic and also a little lofty, is something that I would encourage folks to do on a regular basis, right? Because I think without those, you just get caught in the cage. You just keep winding yourself around and around and you're doing the same thing every day. And and that's what happened to me. And remember, I told you I was tomped out because I was doing the same thing. I was never worried about investing in myself. So set a goal. And take the time to invest in yourself. I think that's really, really, really important. Make sure you're getting what you need to move forward and not just to be still. It's pretty much what I would do today. If I had learned that back then, who knows where you'd be, right? What I know is that I want to just, I think I, I speak for everyone. When I say, I just want to channel my inner John Lee. There is no more Zen. It's just be more like John. What would John do? I think what would John do should be that's our funny. new t-shirt that comes Please in. don't let me see like a t-shirt or <laughs> John, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It was absolutely a phenomenal story. Thank you, Dan. Uh, though we have heard uh, a lot of them over the years, uh, this certainly took us on a different path. I would have never imagined with your background and upbringing that uh, there were so many of these curveballs. But great to hear that you're doing well and you're successful and you're contributing and uh, you're joining us as one of our ambassadors to spread the word and educate the young generation as well as create opportunities for the next in line. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Thanks so much, John. Thanks, everyone. See you. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back. Currencies will rebound. Businesses will go on. 
and we will all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. At Nomad Futures, we are confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.org. And thank you for listening and subscribing as well as your continued support.